thank you, John, for leading us through that time. Excited to uh, jump into uh, the continuation of our Road to Emmaus series. I know that we are reaching the very end of this road itself. Um, next week being Easter, um, jazzed and so excited for the ways that we are going to continue to try to make um, the message that is Easter, the celebration and hope that is the continuation of the message of Easter, new and uh, just amazing for you. I know one of the things that I've been thinking about this week a lot, and I was even reminded about after this last week, is the one of our values here at Kingsway as we ex embrace experimentation, the method never changes, or the, the, the method always changes, but the message never does. And I love that. I love that about our church. And that is one of the things that we're continuing to do. And it's part of the reason why you're seeing uh, what we're offering on our, on our services on the weekends. So as we finish this series, as we kind of push through and see God continue to move, I hope that you are taking advantage of that this morning and you're listening to the things that you're going to hear, the opportunities to be a part of our prayer and fasting opportunity this coming Friday as you're taking advantage of the Meal for Hope that's happening next Sunday after Easter. And then you're inviting people and friends to join you and to watch and then take advantage of that meal itself. Uh, I've never been at times, more overwhelmed with the burden that is the, the gospel, because I do think people need it more than ever, but I've never been more sure of the hope of the gospel brings. So thank you again for tuning in, and let's dive into uh, this week on the road to Emmaus. We're going to start in Luke 19, and I have to start with a question before I get there, though. Do you believe today we need a national savior or a personal one? <clears throat> now, knowing the context of everything that's gone on, and even even knowing that week to week we're seeing uh, our nation and the world at times seem to need more help or be on the brink of uh, anxiety, worry, fear, that are a lot of times legitimate. We're trying, we're trying to underplay that. But knowing that this question really does have a lot of merit, do we need a national savior or a personal one? I think the text that we're going to look at today and the next stop on our journey uh, before the last one, it really does boil down to this, this idea. Um, the nation of Israel, um, the people at the time that the uh, Gospels were written, really saw their need for a national savior. They were under Roman rule. They had lots of things that were troubling them as a people, lots of things that were hurting uh, inside their society. They, had, they didn't have the support system or the security to feel like they were a nation even itself because they had no real rule. And so when Jesus comes on the scene in the text that we're, in, we're interacting with today in three of the four Gospels, because uh, all four will record this event, uh, we, we see that their real desire and need is for a national savior. But Jesus is way more interested in the individual relationships that, are, that can be restored in his kingdom. And so again, I ask you in the midst of this context, on a daily basis, though a prayer for nationally for our world to be healed as a nation and as a world in whole, I do want you to think about, are you listening to the ways that God is longing to rescue, redeem, renew you? Because today we're talking about a set of events, a one set of events, and a like kind of a four-part telling of a fullness of an event that happened in Jesus' life that really does reveal that Jesus is way more concerned with the big picture than just one set of issues, fears, or problems. So, like I said, Luke 19, continuing this idea of telling the story of Jesus fully when we reach the resurrection next week 
Luke 19, uh, 29 through 40, we find Jesus coming into the Passion Week, into the Passover Week. And so we're recognizing that Jesus has just done a bunch of miracles, traveled along, teach, uh, teach, taught some amazing things. And now he's coming back into Jerusalem. And as he's coming back into Jerusalem, the story, kind of who he is, the legend of who he is, has built to just its crescendo moment. And so the people are ready They're ready for a national savior. And so this is what we read as Jesus is approaching the city that he's instructing his disciples and giving them an idea of what's to come. As he approached Bethpage and Bethel, uh, Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those uh, who were sent ahead went and found it, just as they had been told. And as they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they answered, they replied, the Lord needs it. I always, I love, I love just pausing and seeing myself in that situation. And I don't know if you've ever had a boss or someone that has some authority over you tell you and go to do something that you, he gives you the explanation of why and it doesn't fully make sense to you. Like you're like, I don't know. This is just what they told me. Maybe it was an email. Maybe it was a, I just can't imagine. Like I know they've been walking with Jesus for almost three years at this point or more than three years. And I know that they've probably done some crazy things. But man, the trust to just basically go and steal. I mean, can we, I mean, it's borrow, but it's, it's basically steal a cult. And Jesus is like, hey, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus and threw the cloaks on the, on the cloak and put Jesus on it. And as they went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. Now pause here for just a second. That is the starting of kind of what ultimately what Luke is trying to reveal here, which we're going to hit three of the four Gospels through what I'm going to say when we lay out the story. And I want to let you know, all four Gospels recognize this story as a part. Now, I want you to know this. Mark is the only one I'm not going to reference, but it's not because Mark isn't good or there's not something in there. But Luke and Matthew cover everything that Mark says. So if I feel like if I jump back and forth between those, we're just going to overlap. But I want to give you a full layout. Now, what Luke records here is the details, because he's the doctor. He's the guy that doesn't have to see all the meaning. He just records the events, the truth he wants. He wants to give you, remember, more of the honing, more of the details of what you've been told. So he says this, they brought it to Jesus, they threw the cloaks on it, and they put Jesus on it. So he tells you how they got the colt, he tells you what they did with the colt, then he tells you what the people are doing as they're approaching the city. They're laying their cloaks on the road. And then it gets even crazier from that. In verse 37, it says this, When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles he did. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh man, just this prefer- like this providential language of just, here it comes, peace in heaven, glory to the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. These guys that have been walking with you, they know you. They know you are human. They know you are not this God on high. They know you are not the next king. They, they know your limitations. Rebuke them. And Jesus' reply is so incredibly poignant. It, it, I don't even know if you would hear it and understand. This is a slap in the face. This is a, a very straightforward answer that Jesus has very much so not said too often in front of the he has not been open this much but he says i tell you this if they kept quiet the stones will cry out the stones will cry out and in that statement what jesus is basically saying is he is worthy of the praise 
He is worthy of the praise. And so this triumphal entry moment, this Passion Week moment, this, this time that is just days away from when Jesus will give his life, just, just a week or so away till Jesus will give his life. And, and they, are, they are saying these praises to him, calling out that he is the high God. He is the one that is coming from heaven. He is, he is the Prince of Peace. He's the one to rescue them. And his disciples, the people that know him best, are saying that. And Jesus is told by the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the ones that know and should have known the scriptures best, to be able to recognize that Jesus is coming. He says, even if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out. And when Jesus is saying this, he's saying, I am worthy. He is worthy of the praise. If there's anyone that's worthy of getting that much praise that's built up, and I don't know if you've experienced this before, where someone gets like a, a standing ovation or something happens where other people are just recognized for an incredible accomplishment. But you see that even in the end, that accomplishment it doesn't last forever. The applause dies down. Uh, that eventually, you know, that, that accomplishment, what they've done, it, its significance fades. And then we're left with the remnant of what it once was, or maybe it falls apart because it was a physical thing, or maybe there's another need that takes over our focus. But in this, even the rocks that were created by God know who he is. That no matter if the applause dies down, there's still enough in who God is and what he has done that the applause should never stop. It won't stop because of how mighty and amazing. And he is worthy of that. That is an incredibly important thing to remember these days. Incredibly important. But that's not where I want to, I want to leave you at the end of the story because it continues. I want to jump over to Mark and give you a little bit more detail because here it just recognizes the disciples as the ones that are doing, the people that are following Jesus. But there's more to it. There's more to it as they're coming down the road into Jerusalem out of the Mount of Olives and they're entering the city gates. There's, there's more to it. There's, there's a different group of people that are responding, not just his disciples. This is what Matthew records in chapter 21 verses 6 through 11. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they placed the cloaks on them as Jesus sat on. Now here's cool. Go back real quick, Jed. I want to finish this thought. So here's the added detail. Matthew does, Matthew gives us not as much detail as Luke. Luke goes and finds the specific context of how they got this colt. Here's just like, yeah, they went and got the donkey and the colt and they brought it back. Luke's like, no, I'm going to give you the details. It's really cool. Same story, just, just Luke loves that detail. So then we get the continuation that Matthew chooses to focus on. Matthew chooses to focus on a different element. And here it is in verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while the others cut branches from the trees uh, and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him were those that followed and shouted, Hosanna, son of David! Hosanna, son of David, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest of heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was sitting and asked, who is this? Now, here's the cool thing. This is the next group of people. This is the next group of people that are there. It's not just his disciples who have been with him. It's the people anticipating. Now, why this is such a large crowd is because Jerusalem is having this festival. It's a festival. It's basically a, a Jewish, it's probably the most important festival. It's called Passover. It's when they recognize 
Christ, when, when God delivered the nation of Israel out of, out of uh, Egypt and he called them across the Red Sea and then he gave them a place, the promised land, and he made a covenant with them. And this whole idea of the Passover started with the final act of miraculous clearing and basically exodus that happened in Egypt. And they have recognized and remembered and they have, they have, they have said God has been faithful since then and they come together every year to know that this is happening and this is an important event that they are taking advantage of. And so the whole city is full of people. That's, that's all you know. The whole city is full of people that have come to celebrate that God is faithful. He can be trusted. He is someone that has continued to show him. And so as they're recognizing Jesus coming into the city, they're laying palm branches down. They're laying their cloaks down, which is a sign of a king. It's a sign of a king. It's what they would have done for David himself if he had come back to the capital after victory. It's what they would do to any king of Israel if he showed up and he's finally returned and he's going to defeat the Roman lords and kings and the whole crowd is just pumped up because it's happening at the same time as Passover. And they're going, here it comes. The exodus of Rome, the exodus from our slavery, we are going to be delivered. And in fact, the term Hosea that they use there is, is, it's a Hebrew word, but it means save us. Save us. Save us. Hosea means save us. That's what they're at. They're like, save us from what we're going through. Save us through our current turmoil. Save us from our insecurity. Save us from what's going on around us. They are crying out, but they call him the son of David, which means they recognize that he is supposed to be the earthly king. But they're missing a greater point. And in fact, the way this ends is they say this. This is the Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They see him as an important figure, but they miss his full purpose and potential. And they miss it. And so it's so sad because they recognize that he has come to save. He has come to save. That's what they see. They see he's come to save. They, they see the fullness of that. And it's amazing. I love that they recognize the, the way that they greet Jesus is not inappropriate. He's worthy of their praise. They have got that right. They have, they have laid their cloaks down. They have laid the branches down. They are going before him. But the, but the way that they're thinking he's going to save. Ooh. I don't know if they have that quite right. They have the timing right. They have their posture almost right. But their heart, I don't know if it's quite in the right place. And that's where I want to turn to the Gospel of John. Now, John was written last. And uh, a neat thing to know about the Gospel of John is that most of the time what's found in John is not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, it's estimated around 90% of what's in John is not in the other three Gospels. So when you find an event, it's not only Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but then also is in John. That should give you some pause. Because John wrote this book a number of years later. He wrote his account a number of years later with an intentionality, not to just offer another account that, that, that others said, but to offer it in a unique way. To offer it in a way with a purpose that was different. See, John wrote his book knowing that he wanted everyone to believe that's what his book was all about. He wrote his account of Jesus, hoping that those who would read this would choose to believe in Jesus. And so John puts his account of this in chapter 12, almost the exact center of his gospel. 
Almost the exact center. Because everything that's going to come before and after is leading you to, to understand the fullness of what this really meant. But he has this triumphal entry right there. Right there. And I want you to realize, I want you to see the words that he chooses to use to describe the ending of this section. I think it brings prominence to what we're dealing with. So in John chapter 12, we get this. And the first disciples did not understand all of this that was happening. See, John, John's just said a very brief account of what we've just gone through, that Jesus entered in, these crowds have laying down, they, they call out to him to save them, he, they call out to him to be the king. And even the disciples did not understand fully what was going on. They, they thought they had it, they knew he was worthy, they, they laid it down, they knew he was coming to save. But after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, he ends it by saying this, now the crowds that were with him, he called Lazarus from the tomb, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard what he had done and performed the sign, went out to meet him. All right? And the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I find that curious. The disciples didn't see the full picture yet. They, they knew something special was going on. The crowds didn't see the full picture. Now, they talk, John mentions Lazarus in this because Lazarus was the first person that Jesus basically rose from the grave that everybody heard about the story. He heard about this, this person that was dead for three days and then brought back to life by Jesus. And so they're going, oh man, this guy is worthy. He could be the prophet, the king. And the Pharisees even get it. They're like, look, all our work to go against Jesus, it's not working because the whole world has given or is giving him notice. And so this is the third thought I have for you. The whole world will know. The whole world will know. John is bringing it to your understanding that, listen, when this triumphal entry happens, when Jesus comes down in, not only his disciples, not only the crowds, but those that are against Jesus, and those that recognize that maybe, maybe he's not who they thought he should be, they still know his name, and they still recognize that he has incredible influence. And they're saying, man, I don't know if we can fight against this. I think the whole world's going to know about him. And I find that amazing because the story hasn't even been completed yet. They don't even know the fullness. The Pharisees don't know the fullness of what's going to happen. And they start to see that the whole world will know. Now, John mentions in there that the disciples did not understand fully what they were seeing. And then he says, after Jesus came back from the grave, which, spoiler alert, He's gone, and we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, after they get the full picture of that, they started to look at the old text and the things that they knew as different, and they saw Jesus fully. They saw Jesus fully. I want to give you a glimpse of maybe one of the main ones that I think draws the, the clearest picture of one of the things that after Jesus comes in on the triumphal entry, after they, they give him the praise that he's worthy of, if they think of him as this national savior, savior and they ask him to save their nation just as God has before out of Egypt and to save them from what's, what's going on in Rome and to come in and rescue them. After Jesus raises from the grave, 
I think they see Jesus differently. And I want to read you Isaiah 53, just a few verses for you to see how the context of a risen Savior with the context of the cross in the foreground, do you see the world differently? Do you see this triumphal entry differently? Do you hear and see the hearts of the disciples changing? Look at Isaiah 53, 1-6. This is what it says. This is a thousand years before Jesus ever comes. He has believed our message. This is Isaiah talking, but prophesying, prophesying, talking about what will to come, what's to come. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. He, we, we, he held him with low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned our own way. And the Lord has laid him, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now that's just a small section of Isaiah 53 but you can start to see the imagery of what the disciples would see of him coming into the town of Jerusalem, receiving all this praise, receiving all this glory, receiving the instruction of saying, hey, rescue our nation, rescue our people. But Jesus knew the full picture. And when the disciples saw what Jesus was willing to do, to be killed, laid bare for the world, they knew that God's plan was going to be a little different than what they expected. Now, using this as a teaching tool for us, I don't think many of us expect Jesus to ride in on a donkey. I don't think many of us expect us, uh, each of us to get to shout to him personally in the flesh. I don't think that's what we expect. But I wonder if many of us today don't have the nation that needs to be saved over the person. I wonder if some of us need to be a little bit more examining of our own hearts, a little bit more open to what God wants us to do and think about in these coming weeks and days. I wonder if a distraction of a nation's poverty could reveal my own poverty in my own life. Or would I be so distracted with the big things that I would miss the purpose of what God can do with pain? in an individual's heart. So I want to give you three thoughts, three takeaways from what I've talked about today. The first one is this. He is worthy before anything changes. I just want you to think about that. I know 
listen, I know the world is changing on the hour, by the hour. The numbers are astronomical, but sometimes they're scary. Sometimes the projections of what they're saying are even scarier. And, and the thought and the anxiety that, listen, we have all lived with this our whole lives. We know the end is coming. It hasn't changed a thing, but when it becomes a little bit more thin, when we see our mortality, when we recognize our lack of control, when we know that we cannot change all the outcomes, no matter the preparation, no matter the emergency, no matter the heroism of all the people that are willing to risk their lives to help those get healthy. Listen, we can't change that. We can't change that. And I think our, our natural response is to go, God, I will withhold your worthiness. I will withhold your glory. I will withhold what you have done. I will not see you for the great God that you are. And we forget our own brokenness the pain that we have caused in our lives and the lives of others. And, and we forget our responsibility, even in our small context, in our small worlds, and the decisions that we have made that have had, like a virus, detrimental consequences to the people around us. Detrimental consequences to the people we love and the people that are close to us and the people we've never even met that what we would choose to do that is selfish or greedy or backstabbing or gossipy could break apart the things that God loves. And so in these moments, yes, we are going to pray for our nation to be healed. We are going to pray that God does a miracle. We're going to pray that he heals all the people that are sick. We're going to pray that he would do it quickly. But we're also not going to withhold his worthiness or faithfulness. We're not going to pretend that he hasn't proven time and time again that he has taken care of all kinds of things across the board, that if we fell silent, that the rocks would not cry out of his glory. So we're not going to withhold his glory. We're not going to withhold his worthiness. We are going to proclaim that. And I believe when you do that on a personal level, when you recognize your own faults, your own virus, sin, brokenness inside of you, when you keep it on that level, you see God's faithfulness in your daily life, and then you get to trust him to move forward into the bigger things. And that leads me into the second thought. God, or he, rescues in big ways, not my ways. Man, I wish I had... I wish I could just get into God's brain sometimes. I mean, I just wish it, don't you? I mean, I quoted that this last week, that his thoughts are not my thoughts, and, and, and I wish my ways were his ways, but they, he is bigger than that. And, and I want to put this in context for you. The nation of Israel wanted rescue for their nation and their people. God wanted rescue for the world and all people. And so what they asked for, it wasn't wrong. It wasn't, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't big enough. It, it, I want to say again, it wasn't wrong, it wasn't bad, it just wasn't big enough. Uh, he wants to do bigger, better, greater things than you and I even have the ability to know how to do, or our ways aren't quite his ways because they don't include all the data, they don't include all the perspective. So how then can we hold him accountable for not following through what we see as a good plan when his plans are better, perfect, greater? And so as I read this account, I, I know that my thoughts are, I want now, I want, I want when I'm chased away, I want, I want out of quarantine, I want my kids back in school, I, I want to see my friends, I want things to be different, I want my job to be back, I want things to be healed in my bank account. I, I understand that there's lots of things outside of the context of your control that you want to be able to step into, that you want to be able to say, this is what I want, this is the way, and I, I, I need you to trust God's ways. They're bigger. You pray to him, you cry out to him, you give him 
all the praise he's worthy of, and then you trust that his way is bigger, that he will utilize and, and absolutely prioritize his big plan over your small ways. I, I can't illustrate this any better than you. Than we, we have had eight people that have said they want to get baptized in the last month. I in no way want to tell you that, that I like the coronavirus or anything that's going on with COVID-19. I don't want that. But I will tell you this. We haven't had eight baptisms in a month in years. And so what I meant and what I see in a small way as being cured, I, I'm like, I, listen, I don't want this to continue, but listen, I want revival. I want individual lives to come to Christ. And God's ways are bigger. And to give you a final thought with this is God never wastes suffering. God never wastes suffering, and he will bring it to its full potential. Full potential of what we ever go to. He will absolutely use it to its full potential if we will trust him through it. So the third thing then, if he is worthy of our praise before anything changes and he rescues in bigger ways, not my ways, he wants the world to know him, even me, including me. And I know for you and for me, uh, I want the world to know him, but I'll, I'll tell you, I've talked to so many people on the phone through text messages. Everybody's clinging to Jesus a little tired today. Everybody's taking their time. They, they want the world to be healed. But I love the focus that this has brought, that, that listen, in the rescue, in the knowing of God, it's not just the overarching healing that's changing. It is the individual relationships and hearts with people that God is doing great things in. That he is pulling people in that have missed the priorities. They have been in a hurry. They have been distracted. They have found their security in other things. And this has brought them back to saying, maybe I need to know this God. Not just live under his umbrella of, of a building or umbrella of attendance or umbrella of security or umbrella of my business or, or even my relationships with other people, but I need to know individually this God. And this is why this story makes sense because Jesus didn't come in to just have a crowd applaud. He came in to know a person and people. He wanted the whole world to have a relationship with him. He didn't want to stand on high or be on a donkey and praise at a distance. He came intimately to walk hand in hand with people and to rescue them. Genesis says Jesus came, or God came to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. I love that concept that God did not stay, make the earth and walk away. God made the earth and walked with man in the cool of the day. And I think each of us need to recognize that, that we, we need to spread God around the world. We hope the world knows, but he, he came to know you too. And cling close to him. Cling to him in these days when anxiety and worry, when, when anger or frustration, when things overwhelm you, all the more, all the more may you cling to Jesus. As I was working through this this week, I had a couple individuals that were helping me ponder some ideas and, and make sure that I'm seeing the full concept. And I got this phrase last night that I thought was so incredibly powerful to wrapping up my heart and I think encapsulating what I hope will be true for you and I over the next coming weeks as we go forward and will be a great thing to try to capture on Easter. A great thing for us to make sure that we are true in. And this is all the statement says, may we seek to know him, to know God as he really is, not merely as our fear needs him to be. We seek to know him as he really is, not merely as our fear 
needs him to be. Israel missed Jesus' fullness because they had fear of Rome. But they missed his whole purpose in this moment because they, they let their momentary fear and need overwhelm the big thing that God was doing, and they missed it. And even the disciples that were walking with Jesus missed it until they saw the ending, and they knew the fullness of what God was up to. For you and I, over the next weeks, hopefully not months, but maybe we continue this for a lifetime, that we would not ask God to merely be what we need in our fear, but we would really seek to know who he really is and who he really is all about and what he is worthy of and how his ways are bigger than our ways and how his ways include me individually in his plan. The kingdom of God is here. It's worthy of praise. It's worthy of praise. And it's bigger it's bigger than we think. The kingdom of God is here. Guys, I'm so thankful that you've taken the time to listen today. May you let this statement quiver in your mind. Chew on it. Think about it. May it be something that, that you ask and pray for as the coming time when we recognize that Jesus is going to be raised from the grave and we are going to celebrate that. We are going to announce that to the world, but I want it to be true to you that you know he is worthy of, of his praise. Nothing changes. He's still worthy. And even if he doesn't go the way you want it to, his ways are bigger and better. And even if you know the whole world should know, I want you to know. God's for you. He came for you. He loves you. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for the ways that you continue to speak through your example and your witness. And Lord, as we approach this day that we celebrate you coming back from the grave, we celebrate the new life and the victory that that is, and we walk in that victory, and we claim it as something that individually we get to do, not just as a nation, but individually. Lord, we give you praise and honor and glory. We lift you up. We say thank you for saving us. Thank you for having a plan that was bigger than just one time or one group of people, but was for the whole world. And thank you for desiring to know each of us. Lord, may we choose to know you beyond just the fear, beyond what you can just give, beyond what the momentary things need. May we choose to embrace you and love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great and glorious day in the Lord. We'll see you later.